last few weeks, we've been studying the fall in Genesis chapter 3, with the exception of last week, we celebrated Falls Creek. But we've probably spent uh, at least three weeks on it, and we're going to have another week after this. But for those of you who don't have a background in church, or maybe uh, you didn't grow up in church, you might not know what the fall is, because I talk consistently about the fall. Well, when I mention the fall, what I'm really referring to is the sin of Adam and Eve and how it affected the world. Now, even if you've been raised in church, you still might not know why we refer to it as the fall. How many of you know why we refer to it as the fall? I mean, you've never been taught on why we do that. We just do that in church. Well, the reason we refer to it as the refer to it as the fall is because of two New Testament scriptures. These two scriptures characterize man's choice to sin as a fall. In fact, let's look at the very first one, and we'll also look at the second one if we have time. Well, we'll make time. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 6. It says, An elder must not be a new believer, because he might become proud, and the devil would cause him to fall. In other words, to sin. So sin is characterized as falling. So let's go ahead and look at the other verse so you'll see where we're coming from. Look with me, if you would, in the book of James, chapter 5, verse number 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by, let's see if I can turn my page, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be nay, yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Now, that word fall there is referring to sin. So again, sin is characterized as falling. So because of these two scriptures, many of the early church fathers began referring to Adam and Eve's sin as the fall. In fact, Augustine, who's really one of the most prestigious of the early church fathers, Dante and John Milton, took the Genesis account of Adam and Eve's sin, and they developed what is known as the doctrine of the fall. So that's why the church refers to Adam and Eve's sin as the fall. It's characterizing sin as a fall. In fact, we do the very same thing. We kind of have a figure of speech. If someone experiences a type of sin and maybe they've fallen from grace or they've fallen from their position, the result of their act resulted in this fall. And so that's why the Bible characterizes sin as the fall. Now, we've covered everything so far in this story except for the, the curse. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight and also next week. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19. We're only going to be able to cover verses 14 and 15 tonight, but we're going to have a good start on it. Anyways, beginning with verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent... Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till you return unto the ground, 
for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. Now, this whole passage that I've just read is known as the curse. But the truth is, there are several curses involved. So really, it shouldn't be singular, the curse, but it should be plural, curses. Because you've got several curses. You've got the curse on the animal kingdom, the curse on the serpent, the curse on the woman, the curse on the man, and the curse on the whole world. In fact, this is going to explain why we're living in such a perverted world. You see, one of the problems that most philosophers have had in history is trying to make sense of this world that we live in. And one of the reasons it's so difficult to do is because they think that the world we're living in is normal. But we as Christians understand that the world that we are living in is abnormal. It is not the world that God created for us to live in. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of the fall, we are now living in an abnormal world. So really, if you want to have a true philosophy of life, you must be a Christian. In order to have a true philosophy of how the world works, along with us in it, you have to be a Christian. Because we understand that this world that we're living in is not normal. It is abnormal. That's why there's death and pain and sorrow. Now I want you to notice that God pronounced each curse in the same chronological order in which each act of sin was committed. First he started with the serpent. Then he moved on to Eve. And last but not least, he came to Adam. But the interesting thing is, as each person, or I should say, say because the serpent is, I guess we can call him a person, as he addressed each, each person and pronounced the curse upon them or what would happen, he also explained how it would affect the world around them. And so as we're looking at what he said to the serpent, we're going to see other things that happened as a result of this. When it comes to Eve, we're going to see how it affected the world also. And especially when we come to Adam. In fact, when he addresses Adam, we're really going to understand the world that we live in. Now, let's look at each one of these individually, starting with the serpent. Let's go back to verses 14 and 15 and read those again, because here he's addressing the serpent. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shalt thou go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now I want you to notice the very first thing that was said to the serpent. The first thing that God said to the serpent. He said, because thou hast done this. In other words, because the serpent yielded itself as an instrument of evil and allowed Satan to possess its body, it's cursed. This implies that the serpent had a choice. Sometimes we look at this and we think, you know what? Poor little serpent, he really didn't have a choice. But the truth of the matter is, the serpent had a choice. It could have resisted Satan's attempt to possess its body. Now, the interesting thing is, as you go through the, the Bible, you'll see that many times animals are very sensitive to the spiritual world. You remember the donkey that saw the angel and the master couldn't see it, and eventually he ended up speaking? And the reason he did is because he could see the angel and his, and its owner couldn't. 
Remember when Jesus cast out the legion of demonic spirits and they wanted to go into the pigs? But before they could even get into the pigs, it startled them all and they ran off into the lake. So we see that just as demonic spirits can possess human bodies, they can also possess animal bodies, but it doesn't mean that those animals are just underneath their control. And so the serpent literally had the ability to resist, but he didn't. For this reason, the serpent is cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Now, I want you to underline the word above. If you brought your Bible, underline that word. Verse 14 tells us that the snake was cursed above all of the other animals. The word above is translated from the Hebrew word min. And in this context, it's used as a comparative, and it literally means more than. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that of all that all of the animal kingdom is cursed or was cursed as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, not just the serpent. But the serpent was cursed more than all of the other animals. That's very important. So let me say that again. All of the animals in the animal kingdom were cursed as a result of what Adam and Eve did. But the snake was cursed above and beyond more than all of the other animals. So let's look at the specific curse that was placed upon the serpent. Look back at the last part of verse number 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of your life. Now, most scholars believe, specifically Old Testament scholars, those who are really very fluent in Hebrew, they believe that before the fall, the snake actually had wings and was able to stand upright. And there's several reasons why they believe that. So let me explain those reasons. First of all, the Hebrew word for snake, which is nakash, originally meant shining, upright creature. In fact, a lot of the Jewish commentaries... And, and as you read through the Talmud, it, it's kind of interesting. They portray the serpent as being the most beautiful of all of God's creatures. That's kind of interesting. Because when I look at a snake, all I see is evil. Anyone else feel like that? But here's what's interesting. That word in Hebrew literally means shining, I'm assuming because of the scales, upright creature. It did not crawl on its belly. Secondly, a reference in Isaiah speaks of flying serpents. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse number 6. It says, The burden of the beast of the south, into the land of trouble and anguish, from whence come the young and old lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon the bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. Now, it's kind of interesting if you study through the book of Isaiah because it's one of the more difficult books of the Bible to study. And the reason why is because it keeps jumping from two different time periods, and most people don't realize that. It will come from prophecy... To a, to a specific period of time and then jump to another p a specific period of time. And if people don't realize that, they don't understand what's going on. But in this, he's describing animals. And in the animal, he refers to flying serpents. Now, the word flying is translated from the Hebrew word oof, which literally means flying. So the King James Version 
the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the New King James Version, all translated as flying serpents. The only two that don't are the New International Version and the New Living Translation, and technically they don't count. And the reason they don't count is because, believe it or not, the New International Version is not a translation, it's an interpretation. That's right. They took in liberal scholars, and, and I like the NIV, and I use it quite often. I'm not putting it down, but you have to understand that when they came, they came to do their translation, they decided that it wouldn't be a literal translation, but it would be an interpretation. And because they had a lot of liberal scholars that were help, helping them to supposedly translate this, many times they take the miraculous out. So when they came to the word flying, they said, you know, that doesn't really make sense. We don't believe in that. Therefore, we're going to put darting in there. Does that make sense? But what's interesting is the Bible refers to them as flying serpents. And what's even more interesting is that most religious or ancient religious artwork depicts snakes as having wings. And that's based on the belief as you come in and you study archaeology. It's because they believed back in that time that before the fall, snakes actually had wings, stood upright, and were able to fly. And last but not least, the third reason why so many of the Old Testament scholars believe that originally, before the fall, that snakes had wings and were able to fly is because if you study the skeletal structure of snakes, there's evidence of vestigial limbs. Now, does everyone know what vestigial means? Vestigial means evidence of something that once existed but exists no longer. You know, every once in a while someone will study an animal and say, well, that's a vestigial organ. In other words, it, it, you know, uh, or we think it was. It must have been an organ that was used. It's no longer used, but we can see a trace of it. So there's evidence that something here was an organ that once existed, but now it doesn't. Well, supposedly, if you study the skeletal structure of snakes, there's evidence of vestigial limbs. In other words, at one time, they must have had limbs that were coming out. So it looks like at one time, snakes had limbs. And those are the reasons why a majority of the Old Testament scholars believe that snakes actually had wings and actually flew before the curse was placed upon them. So, part of the curse upon the serpent was that the snake would crawl on its belly. The other part of the curse was that it would eat dust. Did you notice that? Look back at verse number 14, and I want you to focus in on the very last part of verse 14. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of your life. Now, this doesn't mean that it would eat dust literally. We know that snakes aren't out there eating dirt. You know, if you had a pet snake, you wouldn't come out and put dirt there and expect them to eat it. That's not what it's saying. What this means is that it would have to eat its food directly off of the ground because it has no hands or limbs to handle its prey. So part of the curse was those vestigial limbs, you know, that evidence that it once existed, those limbs were taken away. And as a result, he was forced to crawl on its belly. And as a result of that, he would eat the dust of the ground. In fact, one Jewish commentary says that all of its food will taste like dust. That that was the curse that God placed upon it, which is kind of interesting. But there's something that's even more interesting when you study the curse on the snake. And that's this. 
during the millennium, the curse on the animal kingdom is going to be lifted, but not on the serpent. Did you know that? Now, does everyone know what the millennium is? If you've been coming on, in, uh, to our study on Revelation on Wednesday night several years ago, you know what the millennium is, right? Everyone, is there anyone here that doesn't know what the millennium is? It's the thousand-year rule of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, he is going to throw the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire live. And then he's going to capture the devil, Lucifer, that old serpent, Satan. And he's going to lock him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Now, during this thousand-year period, he's going to literally set his kingdom up on the earth. And we're going to see a reverse of the curse. We're going to see how life was meant to be before the fall. And so the curse on the animal kingdom is going to be lifted, but not on the serpent. Look at Isaiah chapter 65, verses 20 through 25. This passage of Scripture deals with the millennium, how it's going to be like when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. It says, no longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. Well, what do we consider a full life? What's a full life today? 85? 90? The Bible promises how many? 70 years, and if by strength you live to 80. But today, because of modern medicine, we're living to 85, 90, and sometimes to 100. So it says that no adult will die before they've lived a full life. But he's going to tell us what a full life is. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the curse will die that, now notice this, young. 100 will be considered Young. In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees. Now you need to understand the context in which this is written in. This is written in Israel, and so as a result of this, the trees that it's referring to is the olive tree. How long will olive trees live? Thousand years? There's actually olive trees that they think were in Palestine that are still living, but they were living at the time of Christ, over 2,000 years old. So it's referring to olive trees, not the trees like we think, well, they live 150 years old, they get a disease, they die. No, this is referring they will live as long as trees. In other words, over 1,000 years. And my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. Now, I don't know about you, but I realize how quickly life passes. This year, I turned 50. I'm halfway through the ministry. I started at the age of 25. I'm now 50. I've been in full-time ministry for 25 years. I am now starting the second half of the ministry because I expect to preach until the day I die, but I know I'm going to preach for the next 25 years till I'm at least 75. But, you know, I tell my wife there's just not enough time to do everything that I want. And you start realizing that. But can you imagine if you live to be a 1,000? When you have time for your retirement account to really grow. You have time. To do all those things you always wanted to do. 
And, you know, it's kind of funny when we talk about this. You know, when you're young, you have all the time in the world but no money to enjoy things. You get older and you have the money, but you no longer have the time or the health to enjoy it. Does that make sense? But here he says, you're going to live so long that you have time to enjoy your hard-won gains. He says, they will not work in vain and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For they are people blessed by the Lord and their children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even called me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. Can you imagine? You know, now we have to be patient. We pray for things. There's even parables that tell us that, you know, we're to be persistent. We just keep on knocking. And if we just keep on knocking, God, you know, he is good. Compared to the unjust judge. The unjust judge just answered the widow woman because he wanted to get her off his back. But God, in comparison, that is good. But we realize in this world, many times we have to wait. But when it comes to the millennium, we'll be praying. And immediately as it's coming out of our mouth, God is answering those prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And this is what I was really going to. Sorry, I got sidetracked. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, not on each other. The lion will eat hay like a cow. You see, God did not create animals before the far to be carnivorous. That's a result of the curse. So in the millennium, the curse is going to be lifted off of the animals. And so the lion will eat hay like a cow. But I want you to notice this. But, wow. When you hear but, it means, but there's an exception. But, The snakes will eat dust. My. The curse is going to be reversed on all of the animal kingdom, but not the snake. In those days, no one will be heard or destroyed on my holy mountain. The Lord, I have spoken. Now, the interesting thing is, they won't be able to be evil, but the curse will still be there. If you remember... The child's going to be able to play with the cobra. He'll be able to put his hand in a den of all these poisonous snakes. And they won't hurt him. Why? Because there's a knowledge of the Lord. But they will still be under the curse, still crawling on their belly, still eating the dust of the earth. Do you see that? Now, the question is, why will the curse remain on the snake when all of the other animals the curse has been lifted off of? Why? Two reasons. Number one, because the snake allowed Satan to use its body as an instrument to bring sin into the world. Therefore, the curse is upon it and remains upon it. And number two, because the snake represents Satan. Now, there's a lot of ramifications to this. In fact, we won't be able to get into all of it tonight. But hopefully next week we'll be able to cover it all because we're going to be looking at seed theology next week. But anyways, I want you to remember that. The snake represents Satan. That's very important. Satan chose the snake because it's cunning, because it's sneaky, and it later became venomous, just like him. And from this point on, from verse 14 on, in other words, once we start verse 15, the snake will represent Satan. And many times through the Bible, what will the Bible refer to Satan as? That old serpent. 
that old serpent. So the serpent will represent Satan. And you need to remember that because right now we are moving on to verse 15. So when we talk about the serpent, who are we talking about? Satan. The serpent represents Satan. And we're going to open up a whole can of worms next week. Because when Jesus comes along and he points at the Pharisees, he calls them a name, and it is a bad name because of Jewish theology. Something that we miss in Christian circles. We don't know why he points at the Pharisees and says, vipers. But there's a reason why he does that. Seed theology, people. But anyways, the thing that I want you to remember is that from this point on, from verse 15 on, the serpent represents Satan. Let's read verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now I want you to underline the word enmity. The word enmity is translated from the Hebrew word eba and it means hatred. Now that's interesting. Because what Satan thought would happen didn't happen. Just like what Eve, Adam and Eve thought would happen didn't happen. When Adam and Eve thought that their eyes were going to be open, they were going to become like gods. Remember that? And when their eyes were opened, it wasn't anything like they thought. They saw themselves for who they really were. The glory of God disappeared. And they realized they were naked. The glory of God, righteousness no longer clothes them. Well, Satan thought certain things. He thought that he had won Eve's allegiance when he seduced her to sin. And he thought that they could become allies and she would help him to dethrone God. But it didn't work out that way. Why? Because enmity was put in between the serpent and the woman. Now this is interesting. Who put the enmity there? Who put the hatred there? Now, God is speaking to the serpent. So, what did he say? And I will put enmity. Who is I? God. God will put enmity between you, Satan. Talking to the serpent, but the serpent represents Satan and the woman. So, Satan thought, I'm going to have an ally here. We can dethrone God. You can have children. These children come the world, they are going to be able to, to populate the earth. And we can overtake God. And God comes along and says, I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman. And we're going to find out how he does that in just a minute. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. All right? But I want you to notice. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then he goes further. He says, and between his seed, and her seed. Wow. Now I want to stop right here, and I want to point something out. This is actually a primeval prophecy of the coming Messiah. Now let me explain why I say that. First of all, a woman doesn't have seed. Only men have seed. And if we go back to the original language, we understand that he's talking about sperm. And let me explain how we know that. The word seed is translated from the Hebrew word zerah, which means semen. 
Now, it can be used metaphorically. It can be used to refer to descendants. But the base root meaning of Zerah means semen. In fact, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, remember the Old Testament's original language is Hebrew. But after the Babylonian captivity, the people ceased to speak Hebrew. The common people did, and they spoke Arabic. And only those who were educated actually spoke Hebrew. And then when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he Hellenized the world. Remember, Greeks were referred to as Hellenes. We studied that. But he Hellenized the world. And Greek became like English is today. If you wanted to do business in the Grecian Empire, you learned Greek. So everyone knew Greek. If you didn't know Greek, what were you referred to as? You remember? Barbarians. Why were you referred to as a barbarian? Because those who didn't speak Greek spoke barbar. That's what they said. And therefore, the word barbarian came out. So if you didn't speak Greek, you spoke barbar. You were a barbarian. Now, here's the interesting thing. Because the people didn't speak Hebrew, they wanted to translate the Old Testament from, from Hebrew into Greek. So they brought in 70 scholars, and they translated it from Hebrew into Greek, and that translation is referred to as the Septuagint. And this happened long before Christ came on the scene. So before Christ ever came on the scene, the majority of the people did not read the Old Testament in Hebrew. They read the Old Testament in Greek. That's why in the New Testament, so many of the things that are are, uh, quoted from the Old Testament seem to be a little bit off. Have you ever noticed that? There'll be a reference, and it's a quote from the Old Testament. You read it, and you go back and look, and it goes, well, that's a little bit different. Why is it a little bit different? Because they're not quoting from the Hebrew. They're quoting from the Greek. They're quoting from the Septuagint. Now, when the Old Testament was translated to Greek, the Septuagint, the word sperma was used for the Hebrew word zerah. Our word sperm is transliterated from the Greek word sperma. So this is clearly implying that someday a Savior is going to be conceived supernaturally and be born of a virgin. Now, the Jews of today like to pretend that there is no such prophecy of the Messiah being born of a virgin. But I'll be honest with you, that's hogwash. They really have to do some fancy footwork. In fact, a lot of the time is spent... Always writing these articles because now you have Messianic Jews coming out and they're witnessing to other Jews and they're coming to the scriptures. And so the rabbis who do not believe in Jesus have to do a lot of fancy footwork because of what Genesis 3.15 says. And because of Isaiah chapter 7 verse number 14. If you would, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Now I want you to notice. I want you to notice that there is a definite article before the word virgin. Now the King James Version omits this definite article. But they shouldn't have because it's in the original Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word ha. And it indicates that the virgin who will give birth to a son was previously promised. That's why it says not a virgin, like the King James Version says, but in the original Hebrew it says, the virgin 
will give birth. Why will the virgin? Because it's talking about a specific virgin, one that was previously promised. And the only previous promise of a virgin supernaturally conceiving a son is in Genesis 3.15. So Isaiah chapter 7 verse number 14 is a reference to Genesis 3.15. And Jewish scholars know that but refuse to admit it because it points to Jesus. So they have to do a lot of fancy footwork. But what's interesting is the Messianic Jews are nailing them with this scripture. Secondly, I want you to notice that a personal pronoun is used in Genesis 3.15. In other words, the woman's seed is a person. Look at verse number 15 again. Let's pop it up there. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see that personal pronoun? He shall bruise your head. He is the Hebrew word who. Who is a personal pronoun. If you decline it, it is third person, masculine, singular. Masculine means, now remember what third person is? Can I give you a little English grammar lesson? If you remember, first person is I. If it's plural, it's we. Second person is you. If it's singular, it's you. If it's plural, it's you. You can refer to an individual or many. Third person, singular is he, she, or it. Right? Plural is they. This is third person, singular, masculine he which tells us that the woman's seed refers to a person more specifically a man and that man is who Jesus Christ so Genesis 3:15 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah someday a man here at the fall, coming in, before he ever gets to Adam and Eve, he comes to the serpent, he pronounces this curse upon him. But the serpent represents Satan, so he's telling Satan, someday a man will be supernaturally conceived, a woman's seed, born of a virgin. And because he's going to be born of a virgin, he won't be a partaker of the inherited nature of Adam's children. It was also prophesied that there would be an intense hatred between this supernatural man and the serpent, Satan. And who would put this hatred there? God would. Why is there hatred? Because she will give birth to the Messiah. And this Messiah is going to crush your head. And immediately when the serpent realizes the woman... The woman is going to give birth supernaturally. Won't be conceived of the man. But this woman is going to give birth supernaturally to a male child. This male child will be the Messiah. Yes, serpent, you will bruise its heel, but it's going to crush your head. And with that prophecy, God put hatred between it. Because from that time on, serpent, the serpent, Satan, has one major goal. And when we were studying the book of Revelation, what was that major goal? 
to destroy this male offspring, to do whatever he could. He has always attacked the Jews. He specifically was trying to derail the prophecies that would bring this child in and would crush his head. In fact, when we got in the book of Revelation, it talks about the serpent was there at the woman and he was ready to consume the child. And we look at what Herod did when the child was born, but then it talks about the child being raptured up to heaven. Remember we talked about that? But from this time on, Satan now realizes, oh no, God's got a plan. And his plan is going to come through the woman. So now there is enmity between the woman and the serpent. And of course, as you can see, and I'm telling you, this was all fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of a virgin, and he specifically came to destroy the works of the devil. Again, that's why there's enmity between the serpent and the woman. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse number 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the way he destroyed the works of the devil was through the cross. I'm going to finish up real quickly. won't get through the lesson, but there's a little bit I need to get through. Isaiah 53 verse number 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and punished for our sin. Let me read Isaiah 53 5 very quickly for you. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. Now the Hebrew word for chastisement actually means punishment. So the punishment that would bring our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. So all of our sin was laid upon him. And he became a sacrifice for our sin. Literally a sin offering. Look at Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now remember... The Lord told the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel. But it was God's will for the serpent to bruise his heel. And the serpent really didn't realize what he was doing when he did it. But through this prophecy, it was God's will that the Satan was able to bruise him. So it pleased the Lord to bruise him. In other words, to allow that. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. A sin offering. He shall see his seed. From Christ, from the woman's seed, there's going to be more seed. You're either children of God or you're children of your father, the devil. 